a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is where we gather to revel in wrong think on a daily basis. Now, I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, flexing for you here, but uh, this is not for people who are afraid to face the truth. It takes a certain amount of courage just to, uh, to look around you and go, okay, this is not as it's supposed to be. And then to dig deeper into that truth, to try to make sense of it, and then on top of that, to figure out what can I do in response to this? Yeah, it's, it's pretty daunting. So if you look around and you say, well, there just aren't that many people here. It's true. Yep, you are, you are part of a very rare group of people who actually care enough to become better informed, to seek after truth, even if it's uncomfortable, and uh, more importantly, to do something about what you see that needs to be taken care of. Got some great sponsors who make this show possible on a daily basis. They include garagedoorproservices.com, also lifesavingfood.com, monticellocollege.org, and hslammo.com. We've been hearing a lot of talk about democracy lately, specifically in the context of uh, the uh, MAGA Republicans are trying to destroy our democracy. They're ruining our democracy. And every time I hear the words, our democracy, I have to wonder, what, uh, what exactly is that supposed to mean? Because as near as I can tell, the folks who are using that phrase the most really don't have a clue what it means other than our regime which is whatever, whatever you know, the power system is around, that's our democracy. And this is why democracy is the most important thing in the world. I think back to the line from, uh, from the film, Johnny Got His Gun, made very famous by the Metallica song, One, and uh, Jason Robard's uh, character. Democracy, for democracy, a man would gladly sacrifice his only begotten son. And it's like, wow. There is actually like a cult of democracy. But here's the thing. We pretend the U.S. is a functioning democracy when in fact it's not. I don't want you to take my word for it. Chris Hedges in Consortium News has an, has an amazing article about how there are no institutions, including the press and electoral system, the imperial presidency, the courts, or even the penal system that you could define as democratic. Only the fiction of democracy remains. Let me see if I can hit a couple of high points here for you from his article. Chris Hedges says, There is a fatal disconnect between a political system that promises democratic equality and freedom while carrying out socioeconomic injustices that result in grotesque income inequality and political stagnation. Decades in the making, this disconnect has extinguished American democracy. The steady stripping away of economic and political power was ignored by a hyperventilating press that thundered against the barbarians at the gate. Some of these sound familiar. Osama bin Laden, Saddam Hussein, the Taliban, ISIS, Vladimir Putin, while ignoring the barbarians in our midst. Now he says the slow motion coup is over. Corporations and the billionaire class have won. There are no institutions, including the press, an electoral system that's a little more than legalized bribery, the imperial presidency, the courts, or the penal system that can be defined as democratic. Only the fiction of democracy remains. 
Now, he says the political philosopher Sheldon Wolin and Democracy Incorporated, managed democracy and the specter of inverted totalitarianism, calls the U.S. system exactly that, inverted totalitarianism. The facade of democratic institutions and the rhetoric and iconography of state power haven't changed. The Constitution remains a sacred document. But there's a lot of collective self-delusion. He says the U.S. continues to posit itself as a champion of opportunity, freedom, human rights, and civil liberties, even as half the country struggles at a subsistence level. Militarized police gun down and imprison the poor with immunity, impunity, rather, and the primary business of the state is war. Now, you might have picked up, he's coming at this from, from definitely what seems like a left-wing point of view, but let's, let's consider what he has to say before just, well, if it's from the left-wing, there's nothing I can learn from this. His point is, this collective self-delusion masks what America has become, and that is a nation where the citizenry has been stripped of economic and political power and where the brutal militarism practiced overseas is practiced at home. Now, in classic totalitarian regimes like Nazi Germany or Stalin's Soviet Union, economics was subordinate to politics. But under inverted totalitarianism, uh, the exact opposite is true. There is no attempt, unlike fascism and state socialism, to address the needs of the poor. Rather, the poorer and more vulnerable you are, the more you're exploited, thrust into a hellish debt peonage from which there is no escape. Social services, from education to health care, are anemic, non-existent, or privatized to gouge the impoverished. Further ravaged by, ravished by 8.5% inflation, wages have decelerated sharply since 1979. Jobs often don't offer benefits or security. Now, he goes into some of the social indicators of a nation in serious trouble. And Chris Hedges says, look, life expectancy fell in the U.S., in 2021, that was the second year in a row. Now, we can blame COVID if we want, but remember, the survival rate was still 99.7% for people who got COVID. He says there have been over 300 mass shootings. Now, again, mass shootings could be kind of loosely defined, but close to a million people, he says, have died from drug overdoses since 1999. There are an average of 132 suicides every day. Nearly 42% of the country is classified as obese, with 1 in 11 adults considered severely obese. Now, he says these diseases of despair are rooted in the disconnect between a society's expectations of a better future and the reality of a system that does not provide a meaningful place for its citizens. Loss of sustainable income and social stagnation causes more than financial distress. Now, this is a fairly lengthy article, but from here he goes into talking about the diseased society. He talks about uh, the political theater, which, by the way, the, the speech last week in Philadelphia, that was political theater writ large. And he says it does no good, for instance, as Biden did last Thursday in Philadelphia, to demonize Trump and his supporters in the way they demonize Biden and the Democrats. Biden raising clenched fists, backlit by Stygian red lights and flanked by two U.S. Marines in dress uniforms, announced from his Dante-esque stage set that Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. Now, of course, Trump's response was, hey, that speech was the most vicious, hateful, and divisive speech ever delivered by an American president. In fact, he attacked Biden as an enemy of the state. 
Now, Christopher Hedges says, Biden's frontal assault widens the divide. It solidifies a system where voters do not vote for what they want, since neither side delivers anything of substance, but against what they despise. That's a pretty accurate description. Biden didn't address our socioeconomic crises or offer solutions. It was just political theater. And anti-politics, he says, masquerades as politics. No sooner does one money-drenched election cycle end, the next one begins, perpetuating what some call politics without politics. But those elections do not, partic- do not permit citizens to participate in power. This is the important part. And again, whatever else he says, this is the part that I thought was so worthwhile. The public is allowed to voice opinions to scripted questions, which are repackaged by publicists, pollsters, political consultants, and advertisers, and fed back to them. Few races, including only 14% of congressional districts, are considered competitive. Politicians don't campaign on substantial issues, but on skillfully manufactured political personalities and emotionally charged culture wars. He talks about the omnipotence that they try to convince us that Washington has, the spectacle that's politics, a tawdry carnival act where constant jockeying for power by the ruling class dominates the news cycles, as if politics were somehow a race to the Super Bowl. But he says the real business of ruling, that's actually hidden, carried out by corporate lobbyists who write the legislation, banks that loot the treasury, the war industry, and an oligarchy that determines who gets elected and who does not. It's impossible to vote against the interests of Goldman Sachs, the fossil fuel industry, or Raytheon, no matter which party's in office. In fact, the moment any segment of the population, left or right, refuses to participate in this illusion, the face of inverted totalitarianism represents or resembles rather the face of classical totalitarianism. That's the kind that Julian Assange is experiencing. But Chris Hedges says our corporate overlords and militarists prefer the decorum of George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Joe Biden. But they worked closely with Trump and they're willing to do so again. What they will not allow are reformers. Now, he's considering Bernie Sanders a reformer, someone who might challenge, however tepidly, their obscene accumulation of wealth and power. Now, this inability to reform, to restore democratic participation, and address social inequality means the inevitable death of the republic, says Chris Hedges. Biden and the Democrats rail against the cultish Republican Party and their threat to democracy, but they too are the problem. I've got a link to Chris Hedges' article in my show notes. Check it out for yourself at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I do appreciate garagedoorproservices.com. In fact, I'm going to have Seth back on the show here in the next few days. Seth is the owner of Garage Door Pros, located in St. George, Utah. This is a local company. They install, they service, they repair garage doors. And this is for all these communities that uh, surround St. George as well. So you've got St. George, you've got Cedar City, Mesquite, Nevada, Colorado City. If you'd like to talk to them, call 435-525-2773. Better still, check out their website and look at the reviews that their customers have given them. GarageDoorProservices.com Even if you don't need a garage door right now, maybe call them up and tell them, hey, Brian's talking about you. Just wanted you to know your message reached 
my ears. Well, to understand the monetary situation that we are facing right now, you have to know a thing or two about central banking. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be a conspiracy theorist because some people hear central bank and they think, oh, great, we're going to talk about Secrets of the Federal Reserve by Eustace Mullins, which, by the way, is an excellent book. Maybe they think The uh, Creature from Jekyll Island by G. Ed Griffin. Well, there's more conspiracy theory. But, you know, the crazy thing about it is I read both of these books and neither one of those gentlemen are wrong in the least when they describe the central banking system that we have and have had since its inception in 1913. It's pretty clear this is the source of a lot of the challenges we face in terms of why is our dollar losing so much value? By the way, Paul Rosenberg has an excellent explanation of how democracy empowers central banking. I love his ability to distill this down into the very essence of what you need to understand. So here's what he says. Paul Rosenberg says, It has been dawning upon the people of the West that central banking cartels have been draining away their wealth. Now that's a significant movement forward. And he says, it's not one I'd want to interrupt, so I'll ask you to use this information sparingly, presuming you agree with it. People can only absorb so much at once. Beyond that, they start to resent the teller. But the central issue here is that central banks were made practical only by the modern version of democracy, given that democracy is a sacred dogma these days. That message can be a hard fit. Nevertheless, he says, the fact is that central banking is... And giant banks in general were impractical until democracy was instituted. Now, here's why. Paul Rosenberg says, prior to democracy, loans were undertaken by monarchs who were personally responsible for their loans. As Mir Khan of the economics department at Dartmouth University writes, quote, the debt of a territorial government was essentially the personal debt of the prince. If he died... His successor had no obligation to honor it. If he defaulted, there was no recourse against him in his own courts. End quote. Now, sometimes princes paid their loans, and sometimes they didn't. For example, the Peruzzi were a leading Florentine banking house in the 14th century. At one point, they lent Edward III of England 400,000 gold florins, which for a variety of reasons was never repaid. This led to the collapse of the Peruzzi Bank in 1343. Deals were quickly made when a prince died, of course, but the bankers had a weak position. In order to get a decent settlement, they would likely need to negotiate the balances and promise more loans in the future. Now, on top of that, many rulers simply refused to pay loans that they had taken. King Philip II of Spain refused to pay back his loans at least a dozen times. So because of this, banking was seriously limited. Bankers developed techniques of dealing with sovereign defaults, of course, but central banking as we know it was more or less impossible. The institution of democracies and republics, however, solved that problem. Here's why. Under democracy, loans are not debited to an individual, but to the nation as a whole. Ah, the light starts to come on, right? Now, Paul Rosenberg says this device of public credit makes all citizens and their children responsible for repaying the loan. So from the institution of democracy and public credit onward, loaning money to a government gave the banker a legal and perpetual claim against the people. Now, whether this was instituted intentionally or not, this ended up as a very clever deal. The person who signs for the loan ends up bearing almost no responsibility and gets to spend all the money. Millions of people who never approved the debt 
well, they're the ones left holding the bag and passing the obligation to their children. That's how $30 trillion of debt can be piled on to- up on top of an otherwise reasonable populace. And his point is, under a monarchy, this could not have happened. And just to establish this, here's what the poet Percy Shelley wrote in, the philoso- in Philosophical View as this set of arrangements was being put together. Quote, The device of public credit was first systematically applied as an instrument of government. The rich, no longer able to rule by force, have invented this scheme that they may rule by fraud. The most despotic governments of antiquity were strangers to this invention, which is a compendious method of extorting from the people far more than praetorian guards and arbitrary tribunals could ever ring. Neither the Persian monarchy nor the Roman Empire, where the will of one person was acknowledged as unappealable law, ever extorted a twentieth part the proportion now extorted from the property and labor of the inhabitants of Great Britain, end quote. And as Paul Rosenberg points out, and, it's, and so it has been, not just in Britain, but more or less wherever public credit has taken hold. Now, accordingly, the biggest bankers have organized themselves into a quasi-feudal system, controlling the world's money as the opportunity permitted. So he says, I'll close with these three quotes on the effects of democracy, not on the bankers, but on the people. In order, these are from Alvin Toffler, from the Third Wave, Alan Bloom, The Closing of the American Mind, and John Kenneth Gilbraith, The Age of Uncertainty. So Toffler said, Voting provided a mass ritual of reassurance. Elections symbolically assured citizens they were still in command. Elections took the steam out of protests from below. Alan Bloom said, Sycophancy toward those who hold power is a fact in every regime and especially in a democracy where, unlike tyranny, there's an accepted principle of legitimacy that breaks the inner will to resist. And finally, John Kenneth Galbraith from the Age of Uncertainty says, when people put their ballots in the boxes, they are, by that act, inoculated against the feeling that the government is not theirs. They then accept in some measure that its errors are their errors, its aberrations their aberrations, that any revolt will be against them. Food for thought. Again, this is from Paul Rosenberg. Just a little something to think about in terms of how democracy empowers central banking. And, you know, I don't, this is going to sound like, wow, you're going to take it right off into the weeds, aren't you, Brian? But um, talking, with, uh, talking with one of my dearest, most trusted friends the other day, and, uh, and I expressed the concern about this whole central bank digital currency trend that's not just taking place in America, but happening in other countries as well. That's the thing you need to be keeping an eye on. My friend says, hey, you realize the Federal Reserve has put forth the dates by which they'd like to have, or at least institute, this digital currency, this central bank digital currency. And I know on the one hand, it sounds like, well, this could be very convenient. I mean, come on, not having to carry cash anymore. It's already nice just to carry around a plastic card and swipe it or tap it or whatever you do. Some people just use their cell phones, right? You know, Apple Pay, boop, there it is, it's paid. But the danger that comes from this is when we go to a digital currency, it puts everything within reach and within view of not only the banking system, but also its government counterparts like the IRS and those who who play the enforcement role within that financial system. And maybe I'm just being paranoid. I mean, there is that possibility. I can certainly be wrong. But 
How would you feel about, you know, the government instantly knowing every dime that you spend as well as every dime that you receive? You know, so that you can be taxed accordingly and so that you can, you know, pay your fair share or whatever the slogan may say. Yeah. Suddenly it's not such a great idea, or at least it doesn't have quite that ring of, oh, well, that sounds convenient. Especially when you start to couple this with, you know, social credit scores and, well, uh, what's your compliance level? Are you being a good little boy or girl? Seems like it'd be very easy to find yourself in unperson. And therein lies the danger. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, thanks again for being a part of my audience today. I am so grateful for the opportunity to speak truth. And I understand full well that, uh, hey, you know, there are a lot of people out there who really don't care. I get that. But for those who do, you are the reason I do what I do. And I give my very best effort each day to try to give you uh, compelling information that uh, will hopefully give you a little bit better understanding of the world around us as well as inspire you to step up and make whatever difference you were born to make. And I know that's a tall order, especially as the difficulty level keeps getting cranked up, right? Somebody keeps making life harder, the incline on our, our treadmill of life. Wow, it's, it's, it's getting pretty steep. All I can tell you is you're up to the task. By the way, I want to thank uh, lifesavingfood.com for being one of my sponsors. There's a link in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. would encourage you to please check them out. See if they have something that uh, could bring you a little peace of mind in terms of your self-reliance, your emergency preparedness. They have a lot of great food storage to choose from as well as emergency preparedness supplies. A lot of possibilities and the time to act is now before there's major crisis. Well, it may not be cause for celebration when you get a summons in the mail to call you to jury duty, but you should never treat that call to jury duty as an imposition either. I want to share with you an article from Nathan Chepik that reminds us how good jurors nullify bad laws. And, and maybe this makes more sense. If you or someone who you know or someone who you care about has ever faced a very serious court proceeding, like if they've ever been part of a criminal trial, And I know for most of us, I don't hang out with criminals, so I don't really know anybody like that. But you'd be surprised how easy it is for people to find themselves, you know, in a courtroom, you know, fighting for their lives, essentially, without having ever done something that makes them an evil person. Just a little something to keep in mind. There are so many laws, so many felonies that, uh, that every one of us are guilty of on a daily basis. You really start to appreciate the jury, though. When you see someone who you care about who is really in trouble. I saw this with the Bundy trial, both in uh, Oregon as well as in, uh, in Vegas. But those juries were the key. And those jurors prevented injustice from taking place. I understand people disagree. What about O.J. Simpson? Well, yeah, nullification can sometimes have some bad consequences. But if there's bad law... This is the thing we're trying to prevent. So here's what uh, Nathan Shepik has to say. He says, Today's juries serve with their hands tied and eyes closed, a fact that serves no one but overzealous prosecutors. 
He says the huge knowledge gap among American jurors in every state is patent and dangerous as it's not as it not only supports the massive incarceration of Americans, but it undergirds the explosion of legally and morally suspect laws and statutes that feed citizens into cycles of imprisonment. But he says jury nullification is the constitutionally guaranteed right of every juror and jury to vote and to issue any verdict they see fit without fear of punishment. And this freedom from penalty frees the jurors to vote according to their conscience, not to be bound to unjust or extraneous laws and punishments. So the jury, therefore, has the right to not only judge the facts in a trial, but the very law itself, a right that undergirds the efficacy and basis of the jury system as a check on government power. Now, a little historical perspective is in order here, and he says jury nullification was the defense that saved John Peter Zanger and helped establish the foundation of the First Amendment. It was the defense that saved many abolitionists from the Fugitive Slave Act, and today it saves individuals facing life in prison from mandatory minimums and three-strike systems for exceedingly minor crimes. Now, he notes here, that's not to say that jury nullification, like any other tool, has not been abused or misapplied or, or will never be. However, the simple fact is that jurors' intent on rendering bad verdicts will do so regardless of knowing their right to nullify. So it doesn't require jury nullification for abuse to occur. However, it does require education about jury nullification to prevent rule-abiding citizens from being forced to render verdicts simply because they believe they have no other choice. Jury nullification is not some privilege offered by a magnanimous prosecution. It is the jury's right to know and use. And the very notion that jury nullification is too dangerous for jurors to be informed of is the prosecutor's motions, uh, prosecutor's motions in uh, limine, I don't know how to say this word correctly, limine, often argue, flies in the face of the founders, Americans' legal history, as well as centuries of common law. So withholding this knowledge isn't wrong simply because it prevents good verdicts or because it establishes a slippery slope ending in neutered juries. It's wrong because the very act of withholding knowledge itself is unacceptable. The current system of deliberately leaving juries in the dark, defendants gagged, and the prosecution at an advantage is not only plain wrong, but it's also incredibly damaging. So a striking example would be the 2013 case of Kyler Carricker in Kansas. Kyler facilitated a drug deal between two acquaintances in which the buyer brought his fellow gang members, shot Kyler, and killed the dealer. Under the Kansas felony murder law, Kyler faced a mandatory 20 years in prison for being ambushed during a deal he set up. Now, the prosecution immediately petitioned to and succeeded in keeping the jury unaware of its right to nullify. As a juror later explained... They felt bound to find Kyler guilty according to the letter of the law until, while leaving the courthouse, he saw protesters advocating jury nullification. He petitioned the judge to explain the concept, after which the jury unanimously found Kyler guilty according to the law, but issued a not guilty verdict according to their conscience. Jury nullification isn't a privilege. It's the right of the jury to know and the duty of the judiciary to inform, a duty that must not be skirted in favor of the prosecution. Nathan Shepik says, Lives and futures are saved and lost according to the whims of the judge and legal maneuvering of the prosecution. 
That's not an acceptable system. By cementing in state and federal law the right of every juror to know their right, we can begin to address America's ever-growing web of laws that causes our nation to convict more of its population than any other nation. Excellent article and an excellent reminder. If you haven't checked out uh, the Fully Informed Jury Association, I think it's FIJA.org. Well worth your while, just in case you're ever called up to be a juror. Now, like I say, I, because of my association with Ryan Bundy, because of following very closely the events of Bunkerville, as well as the Malheur Wildlife Refuge occupation, and the trials that followed those actions, I really wondered, man, what are the juries going to do? I was there in Vegas when they were picking the, the jury for, uh, for Cliven and Ammon and Ryan's trial. And I remember sitting there looking over the faces of those jurors as they're, as they're you know, starting to, to do the voir dire uh, questioning and, and to see who, who would be worthy to stay on this jury. And as they picked the jurors, I'm sitting there in my heart just secretly praying, please, let somebody be on this jury who understands that if something here doesn't add up, they can say not guilty. And at the very least, hang the, hang the jury, Right. So the judge has to declare a mistrial or, at best, convince their fellow jurors that uh, this is not uh, the violation of the law, that, uh, that the case, the, this is not the violation of the law that the prosecution is trying to make. Man, it was fascinating. It was really amazing to see. And I, I've got to say, I have some real misgivings about our legal system. And I feel that sometimes it is so hopelessly stacked in favor of the state that uh, it's, it's almost hopeless. However, I witnessed firsthand what happened with this jury pool in the Bundy trial as more and more truth started to come out. And it became clear that the U.S. government and the FBI and the Bureau of Land Management and others were the aggressors. They were the ones who were spoiling for a fight. They were the ones who set in motion a conflict which they hoped to capitalize upon and solve that Bundy problem once and for all. Let's put them all in jail, kick them in the teeth, and show them who's really boss. And when the jurors started to see that, hey, there's more to this story than what the news media has been telling us and certainly what the prosecution is telling us, you could tell by the questions that they were asking some of the witnesses on the stand, questions that they were asking of the judge. You could just see the whole tide start to turn for that trial. And of course, as more and more misconduct came out, and then the Wooten letter, letter rather came out as a whistleblower against the Bureau of Land Management, and particularly uh, Special Agent Dan Love. Holy cow. Suddenly, the judge did have to declare a mistrial. Suddenly, you know, it was a matter of, well, you know, maybe the judge is going to dismiss this case with prejudice. And I met up with a bunch of those jurors, at least six of them, standing in line to be in the courtroom the day that the judge rendered that decision on, you know, what to do with the indictment. And I asked them, would you convict? And their answer was absolutely not. Why? Because they saw the truth and there's no way they were going to be stampeded into convicting people wrongly. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
Hey, welcome back to the show. A quick shout out here to HSLAmmo.com. If you enjoy the shooting sports, if you are working to gain skill at arms, ammo is one of the things you're going to be needing. And it's here's the good news. It keeps. It's, it's something you don't have to refrigerate it. You don't have to. I mean, you, you do want to be careful. Don't store it in the furnace for crying out loud. But anyway, it's a, it's a great way to turn money into skill. And if you're needing new, high-quality ammunition, Yep, HSL Ammo. These are the guys you want to talk to. By the way, they also do very high-quality remanufactured ammunition if you're working on a budget. Check out the link that I provide in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. I think you'll be glad that you did. So maybe it's the fact that uh, I'm carrying around about 40 extra pounds here, but uh, I'm very conscious of what's happening food-wise in terms of uh, Food scarcity, food shortages, uh, breakdowns in the supply chain, and so forth. I pay close attention to this. And I see what's happening to farmers in the Netherlands, and it just sickens me. And, and in fact, it worries me a little bit because I think this is likely a, a sneak preview or an indicator of what is in store for us. It's just hitting in Europe right now. And I've got a great article from Peter Emanuelson that spells out how the Dutch government is shutting down 11,200 farms in order to meet climate goals. So what does that mean, shutting down these farms? Okay, here's, here's how Peter Emanuelson describes it. He says, if you followed my reporting, you probably know about the protests happening in the Netherlands. Tens of thousands of farmers have taken to the streets to protest against new climate goals, which will force farmers to shut down their farms. Now, they've set hay bales on fire on motorways. They've dumped manure, even blocked supermarket distribution centers. But according to calculations done by the finance ministry in Holland, they're saying about one-fifth of farms will be forced to shut down. 11,200 livestock farmers will be forced to shut down by the government for the purpose of reducing nitrogen emissions in order to meet European environmental rules. Another 17,600 farmers would need to reduce the amount of animals that they keep in order to meet these goals. Now, that's bad. See, there are about 54,000 farms total in the Netherlands, meaning that around one-fifth of all farms will be forced to shut down, almost one-third of farms forced to scale down and reduce livestock. You understand what that's causing? That's, that's, like, that's how you engineer scarcity. That means thousands and thousands of farmers will be losing their livelihoods in order to meet government climate goals. They're literally going to make people lose their livelihood, and that is crazy. Not only to think about all the food that will be lost as a result of this. Now, Peter Emanuelson says, look, we're already facing a food crisis due to sky-high fertilizer prices and grain shortages due to the war in Ukraine. We need more food now, not less. The climate change fanatics are trying to bring us back to the Middle Ages. And the state is planning on forcing these farmers to sell their farms to the state, buying them out. State-sanctioned appropriation of farms and land. Now, where have I heard about that kind of thing before? Oh, yeah. Yeah, under communism. He says, I told you, this is climate communism. The Great Reset is just another word for global communism. And he says, it seems like people in the Netherlands are not happy with these government plans as the political party of the prime minister in the Netherlands, VVD, has reached a new all-time low in the polls. If there were an election right now, they would lose 13 of their 34 seats in parliament. 
A whopping 7 out of 10 voters say they're dissatisfied with the cabinet of the prime minister. And meanwhile, the new party called Farmer Citizen Movement is now polling in second place. Well, farmers apparently held a meeting with the government back on Friday. However, some farmers are not satisfied with the results, and they're talking about more protests with a farmers group that claims to represent 95% of agriculture pledging the toughest demonstrations ever. So the state is planning on forcing farmers to shut down under the excuse of climate change, forcing them to sell their farms. Essentially, this is a form of seizing the means of production. Isn't that one of the major goals of communism? Okay, the difference here is this is climate communism. And we know how it's gone when the state has seized farms before. Look no further than what happened under Stalin in Ukraine or, or Mao in China. Now, it's not all bad news. He says, I think we may be getting more brand new factories producing bug snacks, for instance. <laughs> or we might get more sustainable supermarkets like the one Picnic, named Picnic in the Netherlands, which got 660 million euro in investments. The majority coming from, oh, look at that, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. This supermarket focusing on things like vegan food and delivering food in electric vehicles. And guess what? A millionaire investor at Picnic, who's also been the director there, is family with a Dutch minister who's been involved with these new nitrogen laws. Starting to see the picture here? You will eat the bugs, and you will be happy. You will own nothing, and you will be happy. I don't think I'm going to be very happy about that. And I share this with you not to alarm you, but to say pay close attention. You start to see stuff like this happening in the name of climate, you know, measures here in America could be interesting, could be ugly. But in the meantime, what are you doing to produce more of your own food? What are you doing for self-sufficiency? Maybe it's something you can't do all by yourself, but I'll bet you get enough friends together or get the right sense of community. You probably come up with some pretty good solutions. All right, one final note. This is one of the better articles that I have read all week. You know, the only thing worse than getting all riled up is when you allow someone else to rile you up. And Dr. Robert Malone has a marvelous essay on his Substack page. And, you know, he talks about something that I, I think a lot of us suspect could happen. If you speak up, if you're going to be a vocal, you know, proponent of whatever, if you're going to stand for something, you're going to be targeted. And he starts by sharing about how, wow, Labor Day weekend was a really tough time for him. Apparently, there was a pretty well-known uh, podcast personality who went on the attack to demean and demonize him and to to basically drag his name through the mud. And it was tough. It was tough, even with people, de even with people defending him. You know, Robert Malone says, man, I started to read this, and he says, it... Uh, he says, this wasn't my first time dealing with this kind of internet firestorm of directed hate. But he does say, this one was particularly nasty. People were posting nooses, death threats, accusations that I was responsible for the death and disability of millions due to my work as a young man creating the mRNA delivery and vaccine platform. Anger at him that he hadn't gone back to the bench to try to rediscover an antidote for the injected genetic vaccine material. And so he tried to respond. He wrote comment after comment addressing the criticisms, did his best to keep calm and collected, but he says, just reading all that directed hate 
is like drinking soul poison. Now, thankfully, there were others who stepped up and defended him. And, you know, the the onslaught backed off after a while. But he says, now, a half day later, after a rather restless night of sleep and bad dreams, I continue to feel the psychological effects of experiencing all that hate. And he says, I guess it was just a necessary evil that I had to deal with it, but it was most definitely a psychological poison. And not for the first time. From here, he gets into fear porn and how this is a business model. This is something that CNN, MSNBC, The Washington Post, New York Times, Atlantic Monthly, Politico, and so forth, they so forth, they all use this. They get clicks and advertising revenue by broadcasting or printing articles that cause people to be afraid. And third-party actors, including big corporations like pharma, political parties, or even transnational organizations, also profit from fear and weaponize it to advance political, financial, and social agendas. So that's where you get that classic stereotype of the uh, uh, morning paper and the evening broadcast news. If it bleeds, it leads. Well, believe it or not, the same is true with rage. Promoting rage is also a business model. We use phrases like shock jock to characterize those who employ this business model. Another one is conspiracy theorists, and he says, I'm sure you're aware of, other, uh, aware of others, rather. but what it comes down to is that playing to base emotions like fear, rage, or sex can be very profitable business models in the media and information sector. And by manipulating your emotions, profit and other benefits can be squeezed out of any and all of us. Now, he, he says, look, just be well, my friends. Try to avoid people who peddle rage for any reason. They're toxic. They're just poison for your soul. And he says, don't drink it unless you have to. And if you do, try to have the antidote clutched in your hand while you do. I think that uh, the smart advice here is, if you're looking for it, don't be too surprised when you find it. So if you set yourself up, well, I'm going to find rage, or I'm going to find racism, or I'm going to find, you know, some reason to be upset... Come on, we all know people who are like this. Do you really want to be like that? Do you want to be that miserable? I didn't think so. This is The Brian Hyde Show.